vibe going on in here this morning. I like that. Welcome. Come on in. Thanks for joining us once again here at Weymouth Community Church. If this is your first time with us, either here or online, my name is uh, Chris. I'm the pastor here. We're glad you've come to join us again here this morning. Uh, just as we get started, just a couple of announcements, a couple of details to remind you all of. Um, everyone's invited after the service to stay for our annual meeting. This will be a time where uh, the elders, we will be presenting uh, uh, an update on the past year. We'll go over some ministry stuff, some budget stuff, um, and then we'll also uh, vote to affirm uh, our two elder candidates, uh, Dave Hokey and Jim Martin. So if you are a member, we encourage you to stay for that. If you are not a member, we invite you to stay as well and see what's going on and hear everything that is shared. So that's going to be uh, start maybe around 10 minutes or so after the service ends. We'll just stay in here. So that'll give you time to go freshen up your coffee, pick up kids from Children's Church, and then come back and, um, and participate in that meeting. Uh, uh, second announcement this morning is on February 19th, uh, the WOW ministry, the wonderful uh, women of Weymouth, they are having a fireside chat. This is going to be a time to come together and fellowship and also uh, talk together, think together about preparing our hearts uh, in anticipation of Easter. So the women's ministry is going to be launching a, uh, some stuff at that, at that meeting, that fireside chat. That's going to be on Sunday, uh, February 19th. I believe that's going to be at 4 here in the community room, 4 to 6. So uh, we'll have more information out in the coming days and weeks about that. Uh, other announcements, other details, you can read the bulletin. You can go to our website, weymouthchurch.com. You can uh, download the Church Center app. Another thing we want to make you guys aware of, as many of you know, uh, our friend and sister in Christ, Sandy Frederici, passed away on Wednesday. Um, and so we're, we're saddened by her loss, but we're rejoicing that she's uh, with her Savior. She's with Christ, um, in whom she placed her hope. 
and we'll be having Sandy's memorial service here this Saturday at 1. Um, so that'll be a time to, to remember her, to celebrate her life, to, uh, to grieve together, but to grieve as people who have hope in Christ and who are rejoicing in the hope that, that Sandy shared and that she displayed in front of so many of us. So please be praying for Bill, for their kids, for their grandkids, their great-grandson, um, and the family as they travel this week, as they come for the service on Saturday. Be, please uh, keep their whole family in your prayers. Um, so as we uh, prepare to pray, as we prepare for the service, let's just take a few moments in silent prayer together. The psalmist writes, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Gracious, glorious Father, help us do that this morning, to sing praises to your name. Whatever we've walked in with, whatever burdens, whatever challenges, whatever fears, whatever failures, Lord, we give them up to you. Lord, forgive us for our sins, for our idolatry, for our failures from this past week. And turn our eyes this morning to the hope, the victory, the life that we have in Christ. Thank you for this hope that we have, and we thank you that our sister Sandy shared in this hope, that she is in your presence now, Lord, because of her faith in Christ. And so we lift up Bill to you and their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandson and their family and friends, Lord, Lord as, this, as we grieve the loss of such a, a saintly sister, such a good friend, Lord, comfort us with the hope of Christ, the hope of the one who has authority over death who is risen again, who is ruling and reigning at your right hand. And help us to praise you as people of hope, as people who've received and rejoice in the life that we share in Christ for your glory and in his name. Amen. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. He destined us to be And now we've been adopted Through his son eternally To the praise of your glory To the praise of your mercy and grace To the praise of your glory You are the God who saves Come praise and glorify in Christ. In him our sins are washed away, redeemed through sacrifice. In him God has made known to us the mystery of his will, that Christ should be the head of all his 
purpose to fulfill to the praise of your glory to the praise of your mercy and grace to the praise of your glory you are the god who saves come praise and glorify our god for we've believed the word and through our faith we have a seal the spirit of the lord the spirit guarantees our hope until redemption's done until we join in endless praise to god the three one to the praise of your glory to the praise of your mercy and grace to the praise of your glory you are the god who saves to the praise of your glory to the praise of your mercy and grace to the praise of your glory you are the god who saves there's a wonderful story connected with our next hymn that involves a missionary to india named e.p scott with his violin under his arm, Scott traveled to a certain violent tribe. Many had warned him not to go. When he arrived at their village, a large party of tribesmen surrounded him and pointed their spears at his heart. Assuming he would die at any moment, he took out his violin, closed his eyes, and began playing and singing this next hymn. At the words, every kindred, every tribe, he opened his eyes to see spears lowered and tears in the eyes of the tribesmen. Scott remained with them for the next two and a half years and led many to Christ. Oh, 
Please be seated. Thank you, guys. Well, uh, as we mentioned, we're having an annual meeting after the service, and part of what we're going to be doing during that annual meeting is presenting two men uh, who've been unanimously approved by our elder team to, uh, as, to be recommended as elder candidates for Weymouth Community Church. So uh, we had one of these men, Dave Hokey, come up last week, and this morning I want to invite Jim Martin to come up just so you can put a face to a name, probably a familiar face um, for some of you, but I uh, just want to give Jim a chance to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about who you are, who your family is, maybe a little bit about what you do in the Northeast Ohio area, his work, and then we can get into some of your background spiritually. Okay. But yeah. My name is Jim Martin. Uh, my wife, Jen, is here. Uh, my two daughters, Allie and Katie, are uh, they're actually at church with my brother-in-law right now, but... Um, yeah, I'm a police officer in Independence, Ohio. Um, yeah. Yeah, and who's, who are you married to? You say your oh, wife is? Jen. <laughs> it's very I important. I said Jen. Maybe <laughs> you I might did. have, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and Jen is our uh, ministry coordinator here at the church. So, yeah, so you get all the inside scoop, right? All the advanced notice, even more than I do. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? So maybe give us a little bit of background. How did you come to faith in Christ? Uh, what does that look like in your life? And then how did you and Jen and your girls become a part of the family here at Weymouth? Okay, well, uh, I didn't grow up in a, uh, a Christian home. I went to church until I was about four years old. And what I remember about that church was they had Sunday school juice cookies, and there was a girl, Emily, who bit me, and I didn't like it. Um, <laughs> We stopped going to church uh, about the time I started playing hockey. I don't know if anybody knows anything about hockey, but ice time is hard to find. Um, so there was a lot of Sunday, early Sunday morning ice time. Uh, so you know, looking back on that, and this is not the purpose of this is not to knock my parents. I love my mom and dad; they taught me a lot. But if we had an idol in our house, it was probably athletics. Um, you know, so growing up, that's about was the end of my my church experience. Um, in high school, like, I'm pretty much an open book about my life. Uh, in high school, my favorite subjects were football and parties. Um, you know, having said that, like, college was not something I was going to do. I had a very strong military tradition in my family. Um, so I joined the Marines uh, in 2001. Um, well, while I was at recruit training, uh, September 11th happened, so a lot was going to change over my next four years. Um, by 2003, I was deployed to Iraq, um, and uh, there was a guy on my, my track, uh, that's what we called our vehicles, there was a guy on my track, our, our communications guy who was a believer, and I noticed he was reading his Bible like every day, so he would take the time to talk to me about it, and we'd sit actually on the top of the vehicle, and you know, um, he would talk to me, he would talk to me about faith and things like that. Now, I didn't make any, Jesus didn't come and get me yet, like I wasn't quite ready for that, but I was open to it so much so that I just started reading the Bible. And it turns out where we were, a lot of people think is where, like, I'm not going to get into any of the theories, but a lot of people think that that's where the Garden of Eden was. And there was actually a book written about my unit called Marines in the Garden of Eden. So, you know, there's just a lot of things starting to come together. Well, I got home from Iraq, um, and I started dating a very pretty girl. Jen. And, uh, you know, she asked me if when I got out, because my four years was nearing an end, 
if I would go to church with her on Sundays when I got home. And I said, when the Steelers aren't playing, yes. Um, again, that, you know, but, uh, and she was like, well, what time does the game start? And I'm like, one or four. And she's like, well, you can go to church before that. And I was like, well, there's pregame. There's the pregame for the pregame. <laughs> We're in Cleveland. If I don't find some place to watch the Steelers, I'm going to be stuck watching the Browns. So um, anyway, um, as pretty girls tend to have this effect on you, I was like, okay, sure. So while I was at the base, I started going to church services on Sunday morning as my time was winding down. Again, I didn't have any concept of what I was hearing, but I started to go, like, I don't know, um, you know, God was working. That's all I can say, God was working. Um, so I came home, started going to church with Jen uh, on Sunday mornings. We got engaged in November, and the pastor of the church we were going to did um, marriage counseling, not marriage counseling, but like preparatory for marriage counseling courses. And I was in his office, and he asked me, point blank, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And I said, I think I have, like, about a 75% chance. Um, and he explained to me that that's not how it works at all. Um, and, uh, you know, on that day, Jesus came and got me. Um, so from there on out, you know, life has been a little, not a little, life's been different. It's a marathon and not a sprint. Things aren't always great, but, um, you know, Jesus used a pretty girl, then a deployment to Iraq, and so many other things to come and get me. That's, that's amazing. That's really cool. And that should show you, too, how positive as elders we are in recommending Jim that we'd be willing to let him stand up here and talk positively about the Steelers. Right? <laughs> so. Did you see the last game? Yeah. <laughs> No, I did not. Um, <laughs> but we, uh, we really appreciate you and Jen and your family taking the step and considering God's call in your life. And uh, I said this last week with Dave, I'll say it again this week, that having these guys come up here, it's, it's to give them a chance to share their story, how God's worked in their life. Um, vote, you know, voting to approve elders, we're voting to affirm the recommendation that the, the current elders are making unanimously. This isn't a popularity contest. This isn't a, a political vote. Um, this is us as elders saying, hey, Dave and Jim, we, we think these guys meet the biblical character qualifications for eldership. We want to re recommend them to you as members, according to our constitution, to, to vote to affirm the, the, the unanimous decision we've already made as elders. Um, but we also want you to know that not everybody's met Jim and Dave, so we wanted to give them a chance to speak and share. And I'm sure if you, if you have any more questions, you can come and ask Jim, ask Dave, you can come and give Jim a hard time about the Steelers or Pittsburgh, whatever you want to do, but uh, we're really, really uh, happy to see how God is moving in the life of our church and bringing these two guys for eldership, and we really, again, just want to encourage you, if you're able to, to stick around this annual meeting. This isn't just a formality. It's not just a technicality. It's, it's a vital part of our life together as a family. Uh, it's a time to look at maybe some of the details of things, but also to celebrate God's grace uh, to this church, to this church family in this time. So we, we thank God for you, Jim, for Dave, for Marge, for Jen, for your kids, and for all of you who are here and who will be a part of this, this, this season with us. So we're really thankful. Um, maybe I could just pray, pray for the meeting, pray for you, Jim, pray for Dave, and, and then after I pray, we'll have our, our catechism time. But let me pray. 
Uh, God, thank you for how you've worked in Jim's life and, and leading him to yourself and uh, bringing him and Jen together and uh, bringing them and their girls to our church. And thank you as well for Dave and Marge and how you've brought them here and, uh, and everything you've brought these families through and our church family through uh, into this season we find ourselves in now, Lord. So as we uh, anticipate this meeting uh, in just a little bit of time, as we think about uh, eldership and shepherding and our organization together as a church family. Lord. We know that none of this is possible without you, without your grace, without your mercy. So thank you for how you work, how you choose to use people in the service of your kingdom, how you unite us together as a family in Christ, how you provide elders and shepherds and pastors and teachers and ministers and Sunday school teachers and nursery workers and music team members and greeters and so many others, Lord, to all serve together for your glory and for the good of your people. And so we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jim. All right, I want to invite the kids to come on up now. We'll have our uh, time in the, the catechism. <coughs> We're going through the, the New City Catechism. Ooh. Nice. What's up, guys? You have no idea what a catechism is? Oh, good. <laughs> good, 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 good. God, I was going to feel very bad about myself there for a second. Um, all right, gentlemen. It's all boys today. I like it. All right, so. <laughs> oh, yeah, we got some girls. They can come up or they can hang back. It's all good. So, before we read our question, I want to ask you guys about one of my favorite topics, which is superheroes. Do you guys like superheroes? I've never heard of them. Oh, you've heard of superheroes. No, I haven't. You've never heard of superheroes? Do you have a favorite superhero? Mm-hmm. Batman, Superman, Spider Man. Who's your favorite superhero? You don't know? I don't even know what one is. Well, that's okay, because there's only one correct answer, and that is Batman. <laughs> so, that is, he is the... That I'll, I'll also, I'll also, is Iron Man. Iron Man. Old news. Um, also, I'll accept Spider-Man as a, as a second, but uh, Batman. So, I like superheroes. I grew up reading Batman comics, and one thing you see about superheroes is there's, superheroes always have something special about them, right? Um, like Superman. What's special about Superman? Two lasers out of his eyes. Yeah, he can fly. He has super strength. What's special about Spider-Man? Does he have eight legs? He has two legs. He has two legs like a person. Yeah, and he can climb on walls and shoot web stuff, right? So when you read superhero stories, there's always something special about them. Either they're really smart or they have special and powers. And Iron Man can, can fly. Too. Yeah, I mean, he's basically just rich, but whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but they always have something special that allows them to meet the needs of the people they're helping, right? Some special power, some special ability. Um, and now the last couple weeks... Transformers have special needs. That's true. Yeah, robots Ooh. in disguise. All right. Um, but, and as we've been talking in our catechism the last couple weeks, we've been talking about we are all sinners, how we have a problem, just like people in superhero stories often have a problem. Yeah. Um, and we talked last week about how God sent us a redeemer, that we need someone to redeem us, to rescue us. Um, we need Jesus somebody special. Yeah, like Jesus came to rescue us. And so our question this week is about what kind of redeemer, what kind of rescuer do we need to save us from our sins? So our question is going to pop up on the screen here. See if it, uh, yep. So our question this week is what sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? And the answer is one is, who is truly human and also truly God. So remember, a redeemer is a rescuer, somebody who buys us back 
for God, who purchases us for God. And we need a special redeemer. We don't just need a, an everyday, ordinary guy you pick up off the street and he can be your redeemer. We need someone special who has something special, something completely unique about himself. And the Bible tells us that our redeemer, Jesus, is both fully man and fully God. That that's the kind of redeemer we needed, the kind of rescuer we needed, is somebody who's fully God, 100% God, who's also fully man, 100% man. In the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about what that means. What does it mean that Jesus is fully God? What does it mean that Jesus is fully man? And why does that matter? But that's one of the main things you want to remember when we think about Jesus. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a miracle worker. He wasn't just a guy that was picked up off the street. He's the son of God. He has two natures in, in one person. He is fully God and fully man. Oh, I know that. You know that? Good. And so because he's fully God and fully man, he's able to do for us what we cannot do and rescue us from our sins, but he's also able to identify with us, to die in our place as our substitute. I knew so, that too. Good. Well, what am I doing up here? Um, well, we'll talk more about what that means in the next couple weeks, but that's the first thing we want to remember is that our Redeemer, Jesus, is fully God and fully man. So let's, let's pray to him and thank him now. God, we thank you for your word that reveals miraculous things to us. Things like the fact that uh, we have a Redeemer, that even though we're full of sin, you sent your Son to rescue us. Your Son who is fully God and fully man, who is fully sufficient to be our perfect and eternal Savior. So help us to trust him, to follow him, to obey him, and to thank you with everything we do because of how you've worked for us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, all right, I believe it's time for Children's Church, so you guys are going to follow Mrs. Martin staff and uh, head back if you're going to children's church and then the rest of us will stand and sing together
Please be seated. Hi, I'm <clears throat> Russell Kinnebrew, and I'll be reading our scripture this morning. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. <clears throat> they came to the other side of the sea, <clears throat> to the country of the garrisons. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no, other, no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched his, the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he w was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, crying out with a loud voice. He said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. <clears throat> Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down to the steep bank and into the sea, drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it, in the city and in the country, and people came to see what was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said, 
Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed we are grateful to you, Father, for sending your Son, Lord, to free us, Lord, to redeem us, to draw us to you. We ask that our hearts are open to you today as we hear your word, and Father, that your word will, will draw us to you, that we can, you can abide in us and we with you. We thank you and we praise you for who you are and what you're doing in our body, Lord, and in our lives as well. Lord, we uh, commit this time to you as in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Russ, for reading that for us. Continuing on in our study in Mark here. Uh, and as I was reading this uh, section this week, this text in Mark 5, I was reminded of uh, when I was seven years old and I begged my parents for a puppy, when I begged my parents for a dog, which was not a great idea because I am pretty severely allergic to dogs and allergic to cats. Um, so very rightfully they said, hey, you probably shouldn't do this. This probably doesn't make sense. Um, but because I was a desperate seven-year-old, I continued to ask and beg and plead and sulk until finally that Christmas, uh, my brother and I, we got a, a little Lhasa Apsa named Sally, which you've ever seen a Lhasa Apsa, those little dogs that in dog shows, they let their hair grow out really long. They're hypoallergenic, super girly, which is great when you're a seven-year-old boy, right? Um, but, but we loved her. She was sweet, Sally, and uh, we loved her, but I got to say, she was not a good dog. She was a very, very bad dog. We did not do a good job training this dog. She would steal food from your hand. She would bark at everybody that came in the house. She would yip all the time. She was super annoying. But we loved her, and she was our dog, and I didn't regret my decision. Um, but I'll always remember that being a kid and having that desire for a dog to the point, and being so desperate to the point that I was begging my parents for one. And I thought about that this week because in the text before us here in Mark 5, uh, the three times in this text, someone begs Jesus for something. Someone comes to Jesus with a desperate plea, a desperate request. In this text, Jesus, he, uh, he, he confronts a, a, a shocking man with a shocking miracle. And in the course of this scene, he is given three desperate requests. People beg Jesus for three different things. And by looking at these three requests this morning, what we will see, what our big idea is for the morning is that Christ has the authority to mercifully deliver people from the destructive powers of evil. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning, that Christ has the authority to mercifully deliver people from the destructive powers of evil. And we'll see this by looking at these three requests this morning. So the three requests we have, first we have a request to destroy, and secondly, a request to depart and then third, a request denied. Request to destroy, request to depart, and then thirdly, a request denied. So first we see a request to destroy. 
in this uh, narrative in verses 1 through 13. Because what's going on in this story is after crossing the Sea of Galilee, we looked last week at Jesus and his disciples going across the Sea of Galilee where a storm broke out and Jesus calmed the storm. And after crossing the Sea of Galilee, uh, Jesus and his disciples, they arrive on the other side in a region called, a country called the Gerasenes, which was a region that was populated mostly by, Jew, by Gentile or non-Jewish people. So they step foot on land and they are approached by a man, Mark tells us, who came out of the tombs nearby. He was living amongst the tombs. And the reason he was living amongst the tombs is because this man was possessed by an unclean spirit. In fact, he was possessed by uh, more than one unclean spirit, as we'll see in a moment. And the description of this guy is straight out of a horror movie. I'm not a big horror movie guy, but if you, you read this account, and this is, this is a shocking account of what this guy was like, what he went through, how he lived. Mark tells us that he lived naked amongst the tombs in the mountains, that he was so strong, he almost had this beast-like strength where he couldn't be bound by chains, where no one could subdue him. This guy had the strength, uh, because of the evil spirits within him, he had the strength to uh, break any shackles that were placed on him. Night and day he was among the tombs and in the mountains, crying out in anguish, cutting himself with stones to try and end his, min his misery. This is a, a vivid picture of the destruction, the devastation, the dehumanization that these evil spirits caused in the life of this man. This man's life was turned to anguish. Death had entered him even while he was alive. And so it made sense that he lived among the tombs. And this kind of dominance, this kind of destruction, this kind of death, this kind of dehumanization, this is always the goal of the spiritual powers and authorities who are opposed to God, who exist in rebellion against God. They are always, uh, Satan and his evil powers, they're always seeking to corrupt and destroy God's good creation, seeking to bring death where God has brought life. But then this man, this demon-possessed man, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus stepping out of the boat, and something shocking happens. He comes before Jesus. He runs before him, and he falls on his face. He falls on his face before him, and the evil spirits cause him to cry out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Immediately upon seeing Jesus, this demon-possessed man, he's brought to his knees. And while other people like the disciples have yet to fully uh, recognize or understand Jesus' identity, uh, this man, because of the evil spirits within him, correctly identifies Jesus as the Son of the Most High God. They recognize Jesus' divinity. Now when they call Jesus the Son of the Most High God, this isn't a sign of respect on the part of the demon. The common thinking and practice at this time was if you could name some spiritual power or authority, if you knew its name, then that gave you control over it. That was kind of the idea at the time when Mark was writing this gospel. And so there's, it seems to be this idea that by recognizing Jesus as the Christ, these uh, spiritual powers were seeking to gain mastery over him, to gain some sort of control over him, to dominate him by showing that they know who he is. But the desperate attempts of these demons, they have no power over the Son of God. The man cries out in a loud voice. He says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. 
Because Mark tells us that Jesus had already begun commanding the evil spirits to come out of him. So the spirits start pleading with Jesus, start begging with him to end their torment. And in response, Jesus, he asks the name of this spirit, and it says, we are legion, for we are many. For we are many. You see, this man, he wasn't just possessed by one unclean spirit, but by a whole host of unclean spirits. He is utterly dominated by a legion of destructive uh, powers and spirits. And yet Jesus comes, he comes and he displays absolute power, absolute mastery over these unclean spirits, over this host of demons. They can't control him by uh, recognizing his name, but Jesus has the power to ask them their name and to get a response. He can command them and they obey him. There's no fight, there's no struggle, there's no action scene here, right? This isn't like the end of a Marvel movie where everything is all of a sudden CGI and you have the two heroes just fighting each other. There's nothing like that. Jesus just walks up and immediately he has command, immediately he has authority, even over this legion of evil spirits. As we read in our psalm this morning, Psalm 66, Christ's power is so great that his enemies come cringing to him. They come falling before him. He has so much power over them that their only hope is to beg and plead for him to end their torment, to beg with him to allow them to go into a herd of pigs. Because rather than being sent out of the country, they asked Jesus to send them into this herd of pigs that was uh, nearby. Mark tells us it was a group of about 2,000 pigs. That's one of the stranger scenes in the gospel, this idea of 2,000 pigs suddenly uh, possessed by demons, and then they go crashing into the water and they drown. What are we to make of this? Well, there's a lot of different ideas. You read commentators and scholars, there's a lot of different ideas as to the significance of these pigs, uh, but it seems to me that their main significance is in their number and in their destruction. Because the sheer number of these pigs, about 2,000, it shows us the amount of unclean spirits uh, that were possessing this man. It shows us the sheer huge number of uh, powers and destructive spirits that made up this legion, that were overwhelming him, that were oppressing him. And yet when we see that even this number, this legion, was powerless to fight against the commands of Jesus, we see how great his authority is. You see how powerful he is, how, uh, how he can rule even over this legion. So their number is important, but secondly, the drowning of the pigs, the fact that when they get possessed, they immediately are thrown over the bank and they throw themselves into the water and drown. It shows us, as one commentator put it, that the goal of these spiritual powers and authorities and demons is always death and destruction. They're always seeking to destroy God's creation. They're begging to go into the pigs was a request to destroy. It was a request that, uh, that Jesus granted. He didn't allow them to destroy the man any longer, but he allowed them to go and destroy the pigs and take them to their death. And so this account, it shows us that there are hosts of spiritual enemies, that there are destructive powers and authorities, powers of evil that are seeking to destroy God's creation to bring death where God has brought life. This account also shows us the utter and complete authority that Jesus has to command these powers, to overrule them, 
to defeat them, to bring life out of death. We're in a section here in the book of Mark that is focused on Jesus' power over death. We saw last week how he had the authority to calm the stormy waves of death on the Sea of Galilee. Now here we see Jesus face to face with a man whose life is a living death, with a, whose life is a living hell, who is literally living amongst the tombs, who has these powers that seek to oppress him and destroy him. And yet Jesus, in his authority, is able to command these powers. He's able to cast them out. He's able to restore and heal this man to bring him from death to life. Because Jesus has the authority over death. He is the life bringer. He can restore what is broken, even that which is broken by death and corruption. And you might be asking here, especially animal lovers, but what about the pigs? If Jesus has the power to deliver this man from destruction, why would he allow these spirits to go into these pigs and allow them to be destroyed? Well, I was helped here by the commentator, William Lane, who uh, pointed out that Jesus keeps the spirits from destroying the man, but uh, he allows them to go into the pigs because Jesus' time has not yet come for the final defeat of these powers and authorities of these evil spirits. Jesus, he liberates the man from their destructive powers, but the time of their full and final defeat has not yet arrived. The fatal blow against these evil forces that will not be struck in freeing this one man from demon possession, this man who lived among the tombs. The fatal blow against these powers and enemies will be struck when Jesus himself goes into the tomb. It will be struck when Jesus himself who has ultimate power as the Son of God, who has ultimate power over the forces of death, when he himself will submit to death, when he himself will submit and drink the full cup of death and destruction on the cross, when he will go and die in our place. You see, in order to fully defeat death, Jesus had to go through death. He had to go and die the death that we deserve for our sins. He had to take that death upon himself and then rise again, come back to life in victory over sin and death to show us that death, if you're in Christ, death no longer holds sway. Death no longer holds ultimate power over us. It no longer leads to the destruction of separation from God in eternity, but in Christ, death is actually now the pathway into God's presence, the pathway to eternal life. And so in his death and resurrection, Jesus has made a way for all who believe in him to be delivered from the death and destruction that's wrought by sin, that's wrought by these spiritual forces of evil. In the risen Christ, the sting of death is gone. There is no power now that can dominate us or destroy us or completely hold us captive. We are free, we are liberated, we are restored We are enlivened in Christ. And even as we experience death and suffering in a fallen world, in Christ we have the hope of an unshakable eternal life. Because he is the one who has ultimate authority even over death to bring life out of death. But not all who see him, who see this authority, who see this power, not all who see it believe it. Not all accept it. Not all trust in Christ. 
Some people outright reject him. And this brings us from a request to destroy then to a request to depart in verses 14 through 17, a request to depart. Because one of the things that we've been tracking so far in the book of Mark is how different people respond to Jesus. We've seen people follow Jesus, people confront Jesus, people challenge Jesus, people threaten Jesus. Last week when we saw Jesus calm the storm, we saw that his disciples were filled with great fear. And they said, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were filled with fear and awe, and we see a similar reaction um, from the people who discover Jesus' miracle with the demon-possessed man. Because after the pigs run into the sea, what happens is the herdsmen of the pigs, they go back to the city and the country, and they tell uh, the owners of the pigs, and they tell the other people around what happened. And the people come out, and they see Jesus, and they, uh, and they are afraid. Mark tells us they were afraid when they saw Jesus and the restored man. But what made them afraid was the absence, not the presence, of evil spirits. Mark writes that they saw this formerly demon-possessed man. This man who used to live naked among the tombs uh, like an animal. Now he's sitting there clothed and in his right mind. He, the man who once cried out, who cut himself with rocks, who broke shackles and chains. This man is now calm and at peace. He is fully restored. And the local people, this would have been shocking to them because they would have known of this man. They would have known of his torment and his terror. So to see him fully restored like this, to see him at peace, it would have been a shock to them. And it was such a shock that it made them terrified. It made them fearful. It made them ask, who could have done such a thing? Who could have wrought such a transformation? Who has the power to command such destructive forces to restore this man from such degradation? Who can do this? And what we see is that throughout this narrative, the power of Jesus, it's meant to hit us in a visceral way. You can almost feel the, the fear dripping off the people in this story. There is a potency to Jesus' power here, a potency to it, a power to it that leaves people in awe that leaves people even in terror. Now in our world today, in our world today in 2023, we live in what uh, the philosopher Charles Taylor, what he refers to as a disenchanted age. We live in a disenchanted age. We live in an age where because of movements like the Enlightenment 200 years ago or because of developments in science and technology, we live in a world, we live in a culture where uh, our world seems much more closed off, much more shut off from any ideas of transcendent powers or authority. Right? We live in a world where the idea of believing in demons or in evil spirits or in a God who can, uh, has the power to cast them out, who has the power to heal, these ideas sound strange or magical or even silly to many people today. But for the people of the Gerasenes, these Gentile pagans, the power of Jesus that he displayed in healing this man, it wasn't silly or strange or magical. It was terrifying. It was terrifying to them. It filled them with fear to the point that they missed the good that Jesus had done for this man. They were so amazed by the might of Jesus that they actually missed the mercy of Jesus. They missed the good and the restoration that he had brought. 
And so after seeing the restored man and hearing what happened with the pigs, they, they don't praise Jesus. They don't respond to Jesus' call and repentance and faith. They ask Jesus to depart. They ask Jesus to leave. But in reading this, it made me wonder that if in our disenchanted age, in our closed-off age, if we have developed an anemic awe of Christ, if we have lost a sense of how shocking, how terrifying some of his actions, some of his works in the Gospels were, are we amazed by Jesus when we read these accounts, or have they become familiar to us? Are we shocked when we see that this is no mere man? This is God in human flesh. This is the Son of the Most High God. Do we see how amazing this is? Do we wonder at this? Are we in awe of Him? Are we shocked and amazed by the reality that God would take on human flesh? That He would do things no one else could do? Does it amaze us? Does it wake us up? Does it shake us up? Or are we so disenchanted that we reduce Jesus to a mere commodity, a mere dispenser of benefits? Are we so familiar with these stories or closed off to any idea of transcendent power or majesty or might that we forget that when we are coming to Jesus, we are coming to the one who has ultimate authority and power to make even his enemies come cringing before him, to command and oversee even the powers of destruction and death in this world, to overrule them for his purposes. When we come to Jesus, do we see that we are coming to one who is full, infinitely full, of sovereign might wrapped in sovereign mercy? Because that's what we see displayed before us in this account. We see his sovereign might, and then we see his sovereign mercy. Thirdly, in the request of the restored man himself, so we have a request to destroy, a request to depart, and then finally a request denied here, verses 18 through 20. Because as Jesus and his disciples, as they get on the boat to depart, the, this man, this demon-possessed man who's been healed, who's been restored, he comes and he uh, begs Jesus to go with him. And the language that he uses here, the language that Mark uses, is that he begged him that he might be with him. And this language is, is familiar language. It echoes the, the language that was used in chapter 2 when Jesus called his 12 disciples to himself. In, chapter, in verse 14, Mark records that Jesus called them that they might be with them. And he uses that same phrase here, that they might be with him, in chapter 5. This man begged him that he might be with him. This seems like in Mark, this, this phrase is a, a formulation, a phrase that's used to describe discipleship. It's used to describe a life of walking with Christ, living with Christ, learning Christ. This man was begging Jesus to become one of his disciples, to go with him, follow him, be with him. But Jesus denies his request. And that's surprising to us because throughout this gospel, we've seen him calling disciples, calling people to follow him. But now here, when he has somebody begging him to come and become a disciple, Jesus denies it. He denies this request. And it reminded me here of how sometimes parents, if you are a parent or if you've had a parent, right, parents will sometimes say no to their child's request because ultimately that is what is better for their child, right? If your kid wants to eat ice cream for every single meal, a good parent's not going to say yes to that. A good parent would say no. 
Because as much as that child would like ice cream, as much as a parent I would love to let my daughters eat something that's going to make them happy all the time, I know that that's not going to help them flourish. That's not going to help them grow. That's not what's best for them. And in a similar way, when Jesus denies this man's request, when he says no to him, it's not because he doesn't love this man, but because he has a better plan for this man. He denied this man's request because this is actually what was good for him. And what was good, actually, for the spread and the growth of the gospel. Because what Jesus does is instead of accepting this man's request to be with him, he calls this man to the other half of discipleship that we see in Mark 2.14. In that verse, Jesus called his disciples to himself so that they might be with him, but also so that he might send them out to preach. And this man, he came to Jesus and asked for the first part. He asked that he might be with Jesus. But Jesus denies that request and instead calls him to go and live out the second part, to go out and uh, declare and preach and proclaim for Jesus. Instead of granting his request to be with him, Jesus sends this man out for him. And this is interesting because Jesus hasn't even officially sent out his 12 disciples yet. That's not going to come until chapter 6. But here in chapter 5, Jesus, he denies the man's request and jumps straight into sending him out on his mission to go and proclaim the gospel. Jesus tells the man, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And Mark tells us that the man, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And so why does Jesus do this? Why is there just this distinction between this man and the disciples? Why does he send this man out in a way that he hasn't even sent his own disciples out yet? We want to remember that the scene, it takes place in a primarily Gentile region. And this man himself was likely a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. And he goes and proclaims what Jesus has done in the Decapolis, which was another uh, primarily Gentile city and region. And this is striking here, what happens, because uh, the Israelites, the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, the ones who, they were the ones who had received God's covenant, who had received God's promises. But so far in the book of Mark, we've seen that anytime Jesus does a miracle amongst a primarily Jewish audience, amongst a Jewish group of people, when he does a miracle, he often tells them to keep it quiet. He tells the person not to go and tell what has happened. He tells them to keep it a secret. But here, when he does a miracle amongst a mostly Gentile audience, he tells the man to go and tell what has happened, to not keep it a secret. And so why is there a difference here between how Jesus uh, handles a miracle amongst a Jewish audience versus how Jesus handles a miracle amongst a Gentile population? Well, I think part of the answer is that uh, the Gentiles would not have had the same uh, messianic expectations that the Jewish people had. Because the people of Israel, they had a hope in the promise of God that one day their Messiah would come. This promised king who would come and overthrow their enemies, who would restore their kingdom. And so the Israelites, they were looking out for this Messiah. But the mission of Jesus was not to come and establish an earthly kingdom or sit on an earthly throne, but to come and usher in God's kingdom. So anytime in the gospel when Jesus does a miracle, when he displays his authority, when he does something that would make someone see him as the Messiah, as this promised king, Jesus pumps the brakes a little. He tries to work under the radar. He tells them to keep it a secret. 
because he doesn't want their enthusiasm, their expectation of Jesus as the Messiah, their understanding of an earthly Messiah. He doesn't want that to disrupt the plan of God that would take him not to the throne in Jerusalem, but to a cross outside of Jerusalem. And so Jesus tells people to keep his identity a secret because he doesn't want them to uh, try and make him a king by force, to turn him into a political revolutionary when he is an eternal savior who has come to die. And so Jesus' approach with the Israelites who had these sort of messianic expectations is different than when he approaches this man uh, living in a Gentile region. Because the Gentiles, their issue wasn't uh, their messianic expectations. Their issue was that they had no expectations. They were a pagan people. They worshipped lots of different idols. So reaching the Gentiles, it wasn't a matter of navigating their expectations. It was a matter of displaying and showing them the power of the one true God, of revealing to them that there is only one God and that he alone has the power to deliver people from the forces of death and destruction. And so what's happening here is that by denying this man's request and calling him to go and proclaim, Jesus is actually making a way for more Gentiles to hear the good news of God's kingdom. And here we see the mercy of God, the mercy of God who meets people where they are in the midst of their expectations, in the midst of their ignorance, and communicates the gospel, displays his power in a way that they can understand it, in a way that they can take and go and tell other people. Jesus' no to this individual man, his no to him, is actually a yes to the Gentile people as a whole. It reflects a greater mission, a greater mercy, a greater purpose of God to include all people, both Jews and Gentiles, in his salvation, in the mercy that Christ has come to bring, the kingdom that Christ has come to establish. And so it's important for all of us to remember that when it comes to the mission of God, when it comes to the purpose of all of our lives, that uh, when God says no to our desires and plans, that he is always saying yes to some greater purpose for his kingdom, that we might uh, feel a no from him as a sting in the moment. It might feel like rejection to us, but it is actually part of the sovereign plan of God to accomplish his purpose in a way that is more merciful, more wonderful than we ever could have imagined. You may be a follower of Christ and you may have a certain idea in mind of how you can serve God, how you should be involved in the church, what your discipleship should look like. But God may say no to what you think. He may say no to your desires, your plans, your ideas. But that no isn't a rejection of you. It's actually a yes to a greater purpose, a greater plan, a greater path that God has for you to grow his kingdom, to share the gospel. What feels like rejection might actually be the very path that God is going to use to bring more people into the redemption that is available in Christ. And so remember, whatever your gifts are, whatever hopes you have, whatever dreams you have, remember that he is the one who has authority, not you, not, not, not us. God is the one who has authority to call us, to use us, to say no, to say yes, to send us out. He is the one who has authority over life and death. He's the one who chooses to call and use people according to his gracious, merciful will. 
He is the one who works out his sovereign might to carry out his sovereign mercy. And so are we obeying his call to serve, even if it's not in the way that we would prefer or expect? Are we trusting him to mercifully work in ways that are more wonderful, more surprising, more awe-inspiring than we ever could have imagined? Are we going and telling people what the Lord has done for us, that he has had mercy on us? Because this is what Christ calls the man to do. And uh, let me say, just on a practical level as we close, that this is such a great way to step out into the mission of Christ. To go and tell what Jesus has done for you. How he has had mercy on you. Because this man, he wasn't a seminary professor. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a religious expert. He was just a man who had been brought from death to life by Jesus. And if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, then the same thing is true of you. You may be here and you may think that your story of faith of coming to Christ is uneventful, is boring, is typical is uninteresting, but I assure you that it's not. Because all of us were men and women among the tombs. All of us were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive together with Christ. So if you are in Christ, then you too have gone from death to life. Every Christian is a miracle. Every Christian is a miracle. And so all of us have a story to share of what Christ has done for us, of how he has had mercy on us. So are you sharing that story? Are you taking that story to your friends, to your neighbors, to your family, to your co-workers? Are you sharing this story of what Christ has done for you? How he is the one who has authority over life and death? who has brought us life out of death by going into the tomb himself and coming out again. This is all of our story. This is all of our hope. So go into the world and proclaim what Christ has done for you, how he has had mercy upon you, how he wraps his sovereign might in sovereign mercy, how he is the one who has the authority to mercifully deliver people from the destructive powers of evil. Let's pray. Merciful Father, as we face a world of death, as we experience the sting of death even in our own church family this week, remind us again of the hope that our sister Sandy knows in abundance and in fullness now in your presence, that you are the God who has authority to bring life out of death the authority to defeat your enemies and that you have already accomplished this victory, that the fatal blow has already been struck against sin and death through the death of Jesus who went into the tomb for us and came out alive again to bring us life in himself, to bring us life in your presence. Remind us of the miracle and the wonder of this, that in Christ we are made alive when we were dead in our sins and help us to go and tell others what Christ has done for us, how you have had mercy on us in him. And bring more people to life. Bring more people into your kingdom. Use us however you see fit for your glory and for the good of the world, that more people might come to know the redemption, the life that is available in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.
we'll stand and sing one final song together. but let me uh, once again invite you to, to stick around uh, in about five to ten minutes we'll come back in for our annual meeting um, and I know it's a you know it's a bit of a, a challenge to say hey let's delay lunch or let's delay nap time or what we're gonna do for the afternoon but I encourage you especially if you're a member uh, or if you're in Christ that what we do when we gather together for a meeting like this is it's not just a formality it's actually a discipline it's actually a time to say hey we're gonna take time and celebrate our life together as a church family think about how to be good stewards of the things that God has given us. So I invite you to come back, be a part of that, and even see it as a discipline of what it means to be part of the church, to celebrate God's grace in uniting us together as a church family. Keep that in mind as we go, as we vote, as we have conversations here in a moment. But uh, as we uh, exit our worship service, uh, let me just uh, say a word of benediction for us. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.